0: deep in the heart of the swamp this is gator tales the official podcast of the florida
1: gators
0: takes the stamp and fakes the toss sweep bootlegs off to the right now throws underneath got a wide open Goolsby at the 20 yard line inside the 10 to the 5 he's off to the races he's into the end zone touchdown 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 oh my beautiful run after catch for DeAndre Goolsby and the Gators have taken the lead Pirates 5 for 12 tonight third down conversion rate have third and 14 two receivers to the right Three receivers to the left, no backs, the snap to Kemp, Kemp looking to throw and fires out here, it's intercepted, it's picked off, it's going to be a touchdown, Jalen Tabor a pick six, thank you very much, oh my, Tabor to the end zone. Snap to Kemp, Kemp dropping back, pump faking, loses the ball, and the Gators pick it up, and they got the ball, oh my, the ball came out and the Gators get the ball on an East Carolina turnover.
2: Welcome to our latest edition of Gator Tales, I'm your host Adam Schick. Florida's 2-0 after a hard-fought victory in the Swamp over East Carolina, their second win over the Pirates in the year 2015, following their triumph in the Birmingham Bowl. This week marks a clear shift, though, as Jim McElwain leads the Gators into the rigors of the SEC for the first time. With that in mind, we have a jam-packed show for you today. We'll delve into DBU with sophomore Quincy Wilson and test your knowledge with Gator Tales trivia. Then we'll hear from the headman Jim McElwain, tight ends coach and special teams coordinator Greg Nord, and Gator Zone Scott Carter to break down the Wildcats. Finally, we'll go out with a bang by checking in with former Gator great Wes Chandler. But first, it's impossible to talk about Florida, Kentucky without discussing the streak. The Gators own 28 straight victories over the Wildcats, which is the longest active streak in all of college football. These two teams have played every year since 1967, and the Gators have incredibly won every meeting since 1987 when they were led by Galen Hall and prevailed 27-14 at Florida Field. Though he wasn't here at the start of the remarkable run, Mick Hubert has witnessed many moments throughout the streak, including close calls, massive blowouts, and also one of the most iconic plays in the storied history of the Orange and Blue. We sat down with the voice of the Gators to talk about the history of Florida-Kentucky, and he was quick to point out that while the results haven't changed, pretty much everything else has.
0: Back in those days, this was a game that was played normally in November, and I know uh, the thinking was that the, the Gators always hated to go up to Kentucky in November because it was kind of out of their element weather-wise, and in the 86 game, the Gators lose on a, on a cold and rainy day, and not that that was an excuse because Kentucky had a, a decent team, but the Gators were certainly glad when the schedule then changed, and the Kentucky, for years and years now, has become more of an early season game, and my first visit to Kentucky was in my second season here in 1990, and it was another cold day, still playing in November remember Spurrier saying that uh, Trey Everett has practiced really well this week and, and we're going to get him a touchdown and sure enough they threw a corner out in the left corner of the end zone and Trey Everett gets a touchdown catch and I'm thinking you know that was so Spurrier that that not only was he going to get a touchdown but he was going to name the player and basically how he was going to throw it to him and it worked and then in, in 1991 the next year they came down here and it was a tighter game. The Gators had to really run out the clock to win the game. I think it was 35 26. But Eric Rett ran several times and, and picked up a first down. They ran out the clock and secured that win. And, uh, you know, then they were really rolling uh, as Spurrier was getting his better and better teams. You know, we were able to really lay some whoopings on them there in the 90s. I mean, uh, you know, Bill Curry was coaching Kentucky, and he had, he had a young Tim Couch trying to run option football. Where his couch was a big, lanky, drop back thrower guy, and he just couldn't run the option. We beat them one year, I think it was 65 to nothing. The next time they came to the swamp, I think it was 73 to seven. Uh, the Gators certainly were dominating them. Because that was, you know, Gators had some great teams. Kentucky was really, really struggling. In 93, uh, that's when the Gators used the two quarterbacks, the two youngsters, and Danny Werfel and Terry Dean, and they combined to throw those seven interceptions. And it looked like the streak was going to come to an end in 93. Uh, but the Gators rallied a rally, and Werfel threw the touchdown pass to Doring, and uh, the Gators pulled it out and won that game, which was really instrumental in, in the Gators winning the division. Because as the season went on, Steve Spurrier quickly pointed out that if the Gators don't beat Kentucky back on that early September 20th, uh, the Gators don't win the Eastern Division. So they were able to steal one there. Ten years later, they go up to Kentucky in 2003. You know, here we are finding ourselves trailing 21 to three going into the fourth quarter with a freshman quarterback starting. Uh, In Chris Leak, it didn't look very good in that game, but the Gators were able to pull it out. They forced Jared Lorenzen into a bad throw. And I remember Johnny Lamar with an interception. He almost ran it back for pick six. He went about 35 yards. I think it was down to about the one yard line, one or two yard line and ran Carthon, scored the touchdown and the Gators pulled it out, which is the largest margin uh, the Gators ever rallied on the road to win. Uh, they won the game 24-21 with a great fourth-quarter rally. So there have been some tight ones along the way. I remember also going back to Kentucky in uh, 2009 with Tim Tebow, and uh, their defensive end came off the corner, Taylor Wyndham, and hit Tebow up the side of the head and literally knocked him out. And the only college player that ever could land a blow like that against Tim Tebow. And uh, we came back to Gainesville. We we won the game, but we came back to Gainesville without Tim Tebow. He stayed in Lexington in the hospital that night, and uh, in 2010, uh, one of the great games played in the Swamp, Burton ran for six touchdowns. He scored six touchdowns in the game, and he was just unstoppable. Yeah, I'd never seen that before. One player to score six times, and we win that one like that. So been some great memories. there have been some tight games, some nail biters, some tremendous blowouts. And then in the case of uh, you know Burton, individual performances, it has been phenomenal. It really has. And, and, you know, Adam, you wonder how many times in the back of their mind do they think, uh-oh, here we go again. We've come close. We just we just can't win. So you don't know where the self-doubt comes in and creeps in because that's had to have been a factor. Florida has had better teams almost every single year. But as we know, the better team doesn't always win every single game. So at some point, I think that's had to be a mental block for
2: Kentucky. You mentioned 93. Doering's got a touchdown, one of the moments that's most associated with your career. Because of the place that that holds in the all-time annals of great calls, how much do you recall about that moment? I recall a lot about it. In 93,
0: very blessed to be working really at the 20-yard line is where our booth was, and it just so happened to be that's the half of the field that the Doring catch came on. It was literally right in front of me. It wasn't like I had to look across the field. It was right there. I had a great view of the play, and we got a great kickoff return from Harrison Houston to set this thing up. And so we didn't have to work, you know, 75, 80, 90 yards down the field. We had a, about a 55-yard drive, I think it was, to score. We got close to midfield on that kickoff return. And, you know, they we, we just found them in a coverage where they broke down a couple of times. I mean, Danny found uh, Doring playing in the slot. He got open a couple of times, and they never did cover him up. And Werfel just feathered a beautiful pass in there at the end that, that, that Chris ran under and right through the back of the end zone to, to score. And it was it was literally phenomenal because we didn't have a whole lot going that game other than we were completing as many passes to them as almost they were to them, you know, so that, that was phenomenal. But I, I do recall uh, a lot about uh, that 93 game, and uh, hopefully this will be a memorable one too.
2: The call itself, it's so unique. It seems so caught in the moment and just pure euphoria and, and in some cases surprise. Is there somewhere special where that particular call came from?
0: Not really. Uh, I'm just trying every single play. To not make a mistake. I'm not going into a play with negative feelings. I'm going in there with positive feelings, but I'm also knowing that you get one chance. You don't get to stop the tape, back up, go over, as I tell my friends in the in the sports writers. You don't get to backspace. You know, there's no backspace. You got one chance to call it. And, you know, I want to make sure that that call or any call, if they were to excerpt it, put it in a time capsule and bury it into a corner somewhere and unearth it 50 years from now, and they say, Here was the announcer that called the Florida games back in 2015. They're going to go, my goodness, that guy was terrible. It was a bad (laughs) call. And, you know, not every call is a great one, I will say that. But you go into every call hoping it's going to be the call that stands the test of time. And so – you know, I remember coming up out of my seat and Lee McGriff who was with me then as he is today, said I just got back and got out of the way because it looked like you were just about ready to attack everybody in the booth. <laughs> you see, you were a wild man and I, I sit for most of the game. But there are times when we come up out of our seat and I was up out of my seat standing, make calling that particular play, and Lisa I just backed up against the wall because he said you were like you you like took over the whole box on that particular call. He said you were you were possessed. I said, Well, you know, I remember saying third and ten. 28 yard line time for a couple of plays because I thought this doesn't have to be the last play we, we if it doesn't if we don't score here we've got a chance to run another play but in the third and tenth in the 28 we got that 28 yard score and, and and won the game in a very improbable circumstance so I remember that and uh, what I'm so blessed about on that Adam is the fact this was way before any technology that we have today this really was in the dark ages when you think about it because the Gators were not on television that particular night. And so we had a large radio audience. It was pay-per-view. And so there weren't a lot of people paying to watch the game. So we had a large radio audience. It had happened, if I remember, sometime around 10.30, 10.45 at night. And so, you know, late in the game, obviously, pushing the 11 o'clock hour, and people were listening to their radios. And, and we had a great audience for that. And I, I didn't really know the impact. Of the call, I just knew we won a great game. But the following week, Keith Jackson uh, mentioned it on ABC his broadcast, and they ran a clip of that on ESPN and ABC, and that's when it took on another life. And uh, I for, I'm forever grateful for Keith Jackson for mentioning that particular call because it could have been lost, but it we kind of resurrected a new life there. And you know, today, I mean, you make a call, and it goes on uh, SoundCloud or wherever it goes, it's it's going to be heard within seconds of being. You know, everywhere. It wasn't like that back then. So for it to maintain that and be televised on, on ABC's Game of the Week the following Saturday, that uh, certainly helped my career here at Florida. Third
1: and 10, 28 yard line. Werfel
0: dropping back the throw, pops and fires the ball over the middle.
2: Thanks, as always, to Mick Hubert, who will be calling the game from a brand new press box at the recently renovated Commonwealth Stadium. The Wildcats are hoping their $120 million investment will change recent results on the field, but Florida's defense plans to prevent that from happening. We caught up with sophomore defensive back Quincy Wilson to talk about the matchup with Kentucky, but we started by looking back at ECU and discussing how their up-tempo passing attack might have actually helped Florida's preparation for the Wildcats.
3: Oh, it definitely gets us prepared because ECU like to throw the ball around, so we're familiar with that, and um, the ECU was uh, a really good game to get us started, prepared for the SEC talent that we're going
2: to see in the upcoming weeks. Marcus May talked about the players-only meeting that the DBs called after ECU. Talk about what inspired that and what went on inside that meeting. We had that meeting
3: because we gave up a lot of yards passing while the uh, rushing had negative yards, so we really needed to talk that over and get back to uh, the basics and what we need to do to prove ourselves.
2: There's so many of you guys that are in the mix. Who are the leaders in this group? Who who steps up and says, we got to talk about this?
3: I'd probably say Keanu Neal, Brian Poole, Marcus May, and Vernon are pretty much the leaders of the group, and they really get us going and are really on us to perfect our craft. You
2: guys are all part of what has been called DBU. That became a big thing over the summer. Where did that come from, and how do you guys feel about that? I mean, I think it's always just been a thing, you know, because the guys in the past
3: that came and laid the groundwork for us, and we just... We always have the top DBs, the
2: best DBs, and we're just building on that. You got a guy in Vernon Hargraves. a lot of people are looking at at the next level, being a big time player in the NFL. What can you learn from playing with him and how does he help you?: I learned a lot from playing from
3: him, like, just like the little things that he does uh, to stay on top, and like his work ethic and his leadership skills, you know I'm just learning from him every day on certain things. Players talk so much about the jump from freshman to sophomore year. What's been the biggest change for you? The biggest thing is, I see more like when I'm on the field. Like, I remember last year being on the field, I only see the receiver that's lined up in front of me, but now I'm able to see the quarterback, read different keys, and see a lot more and be able to react better because I know what's going on and I understand the defense more. When you break down your game, what areas are you still looking to improve on the most? Part of my technique because, you know, being a big corner, that was, the technique is not right, then that's how you get
2: beat, like pad height and stuff like that. Now that you're experienced, you've been around for a while, if you could go back to when you were a freshman first coming on campus, what advice would you have for yourself? Just do exactly what the coaches want you to do because it's all about trust. And if you do what they
3: say, then they're going to they're gonna play you. And if you, and especially get in your playbook because if you don't know
2: the players, then they then they won't play you no matter how good you are. This is a defense that was obviously very accomplished the last couple years, and now a new coaching staff comes in. What have been the biggest changes scheme-wise, concept-wise, from the previous staff to now what Coach Collins is doing with you?
3: Probably say we play a little bit more zone because last year, I mean, everything was, was man, and when it wasn't, it turned into man. But Coach Collins likes pressures, and he's really good with that. So we're just learning how to play a little bit more zone. But we also do like to play man too, so
2: we'll see how it goes throughout the year. A lot of people have noticed money down and the two guys jumping up and down the signs in the sideline. How is that introduced to you guys? At at what point did they say, hey, we're going to try something new this year? Coach Collins is big on third down, got to get off the field on third down. So he wants us to know that that it's third down, it's money down, that players be great to make plays. We talked about all the young DBs and this big group of guys you're a part of. What's the dynamic like between you as you all compete for playing time?
3: I think it's a healthy experience. I mean, we all compete to play and when someone makes a play, we all want to make a play, and so it really pushes us to like be better and you know, make plays, and
2: I think it's doing us well to have all this competition because we're all great and we all make plays. Your first career interception came against Jameis Winston, a Heisman Trophy winner. Where does that rank in terms of the best moments you've had playing football? I'd probably say that's probably one of the best moments. It was a feeling that I never felt before. What else stands out throughout your playing career as big-time moments that, that you remember? Probably
3: my first start against Georgia. That was big for me. First time ever starting in a game, and... And uh, I
2: was ready to make plays. Now, DBs are often described as being on an island. So I'll ask you this. If you were on a deserted island and you only had one teammate you could take with you, who would you most want it to be and why? I'd take probably somebody smart like Will Greer or somebody smart enough to know
3: the whole offense and things like that. So I think he'll be uh, great to work things out uh, if we was on the, stuck on the island. Flip side of that, who do you least want to have on the island with you? Probably an old
2: lineman. <laughs> <laughs> They'll probably be uh, lazy or whatever. They'll take up all the food, too. Yeah, That's not good. All the food. <laughs> if you look throughout history, what would the list be of the top guys who you'd want to go up against in the NFL?
3: I'd say that probably the number one guy I really want to go up against is Des Bryant because I, I really don't like how every week he's victimizing a corner, so <laughs> I'd like to be the one to put an end to that and get in his head. Probably Ocho Cinco, too.
2: I mean, I like going against guys that think they have a lot of confidence and be able to break that confidence. How important is it to match that as a defensive back? And We see you guys out there, you dance a lot, you're getting into it. Do you have to match that same energy that they're bringing to the field?
3: Yeah, you definitely have to
2: match that energy or
3: have more because if a receiver senses that you're scared or look timid, then he's going to get in your head and you can't have that. So you've always got to have a short memory of anything that's happened and
2: be ready to come back the next play and keep playing and keep fighting. There's such a focus on the physical side sometimes about size and the matchup between a receiver and a DB, but it sounds like from what you're saying, the mental part of that is maybe even a more important component of, of trying to beat somebody. It's all mental.
3: I feel like it's more mental than physical because um, if your mind's there, if, as a DB, things are going to happen. You might get beat or something like that, but you got to come back and play the next play because if you don't, then you're going to keep
2: getting beat and then you look bad. First road trip against Kentucky, when you're on the road, what do you do to pass the time and entertain yourself? I'll probably just listen to music or just keep going over film and plays to make sure I, I know what I need to do what are some of the challenges in playing on the road for the first time with the new coaching staff a lot of young guys all the other things that go into it
3: I'll probably say just like the little things of being on time to places and knowing where you need to be at certain times you know I probably think that's that's it and um, our first road uh, road trip with these coaches so we don't know what to expect from them and stuff like that but we'll, we'll get it figured out
2: what's been the toughest road environment you've played in so
3: far Probably say Alabama. Alabama was crazy last year. Fans were crazy. It was really loud. It was really intimidating.
2: How is it different from when your fans are getting hype and making noise in the swamp to being on the road and getting it the other way? How does that affect you guys on the field? For the defense, I think we like that. We like when the
3: crowd gets loud because we know we're good enough to stop them and to put that crowd to be quiet. What are the keys to
2: beating Kentucky for you this weekend?
3: We just got to stop the run like we have been in the past two weeks. And um, the DB's got to show why we DBU and just shut down the passing attack.
2: Good luck, Quincy. Thanks for the time. Thank you. Appreciate it. Time now to give you another shot at glory with the Gator Tales Trivia Challenge. Regardless of what happens this week in Lexington, Florida will return to Gainesville next week to take on a Tennessee team they also have a nice streak against with 10 straight over the Vols. But Florida didn't always enjoy such success over UT as it took the program a number of tries to get its first ever win against Rocky Top. The question is, what year did Florida beat Tennessee for the first time? Email your response to GatorsPodcast at gmail.com or tweet to at GatorsPodcast by Monday night at 11.59 p.m. and one randomly selected listener will win a $25 gift card to the online Gator sports shop. Getting back to Florida and Kentucky, the stakes are no doubt huge for both teams. For the Gators, it's an opportunity to give Coach Mack a win in his SEC debut. For the Wildcats, it's a chance to go 2-0 in the league for the first time since 1977. But can they stop Florida's new offense with a defense ranked second to last in the SEC? I sat down with Gators' own senior writer, Scott Carter, to break down the matchup, which began with a simple question. How much has the streak been discussed in the locker room?
4: A lot of times it has over the years, uh, but this week I have not heard it much. Uh, Trip Thurman was asked about. It. He says basically he could care less about that street. I think you know when you really look and evaluate this matchup, this isn't old Kentucky, and quite frankly, it's not old Florida in some ways. I don't want to say they're even, but they're, they look like on paper at least right now kind of comparative programs in some way. They're both still trying to find their footing, and people think they could probably be better than they are. And, you know, this game is going to go a long way. I've looked at this game for Florida as a a big game all season, early season game, the first SEC game. I think we should learn some about this Florida team on on Saturday night. It could set the tone for uh, the SEC season.
5: You know, this team that we're playing, uh, you know, is not your same old Kentucky um, these guys are really good. You can tell the influence that they've had in the three years they've been there. Uh, obviously, the commitment uh, from the university and the school in the $165 million that they're putting into the program, uh, both with their stadium that we'll get a chance to see for the first time, and they'll finish off their football uh, standalone complex, uh, updating it uh, here uh, next year. And you can tell that there's a true commitment to what they're trying to do, and, and and you can see by the way they play.
2: When Mark Stoops came into Kentucky, the expectation was he was going to build a defensive stalwart up there, and yet... They've become a team that's really known for their offense, and it's evolved this year as well with their new O.C., Shannon Dawson. Yeah, they're running the Air Raid offense that West Virginia and Texas
4: Tech have over the years, and it looks very much like that. Uh, Kentucky's explosive offense. We saw that last year even in a little bit of a different style offense. Patrick Tolles, the quarterback, junior quarterback, you look around the SEC and there's not a lot of experienced quarterbacks, but he is one of those that does have some experience, and it shows – he threw for 369 yards last year at the Swamp, and uh, you know that game went to trip overtime before the
2: Gators were able to pull it out. We saw last week against East Carolina, despite all the nickel that Florida was playing, they gave up 346 yards through the air to an up-tempo offense focused, obviously, in the passing game. How similar is this air-raid offense going to be to what we saw from ECU, and how is Florida going to be able to stop that? Well, There's certainly some similar concepts. I mean, they're
4: going to throw a lot of passes. There are a lot of quick hit passes like we saw in East Carolina. It was a big enough concern for Florida secondary that Marcus May said yesterday that they all met Sunday, just the secondary, the players saying, Hey, we're almost all back now. We have our full unit. Let's let's try to cut back on these numbers. So they know what's coming up on Saturday. This is a team that going back last season the Mississippi State game, they converted eighteen consecutive opportunities in the red zone. So their offense is you know, they're producing when they have to and I think Florida, their defense, I don't think we've seen their best game yet, certainly not in the secondary. East Carolina and Kentucky, anytime you have those up-tempo offenses, you're going to give up some yards. But I think the Florida players felt that they could have done better than what they did uh, last weekend.
5: Offensively, I think everything starts with the quarterback. He's an experienced guy. Obviously, they've got a new coordinator. But same system tree, I guess, is is the best way to put it. Uh, The different personnel groupings that they play cause you issues. Uh, everything has a run-pass option. You can see the quarterback has a real command on what he's doing.
2: you also consider other changes when you step up in SEC play, specifically more depth and more quality of depth. The Gators had no issue stopping Harrison last week for ECU, but now with Kentucky, you get a two-headed running back monster. You get Boone Williams and you get JoJo Kemp. So it's not going to be enough just to get one guy tired and out of the game. They have two really quality backs.
4: Yeah, they do, uh, Adam. And Boom Williams, he's uh, rushed for, what, three consecutive 100-yard games. He's a guy that looks really good, one of the league's probably best running backs. And then JoJo Kemp is a smaller back but quick, gives him a little different look than Boone Williams. Uh, one good thing that Florida has been able to do early in the season, especially on the defensive line, they're rotating a lot of players in and out of there. So they're staying fresh up there. So that could be a huge factor for them on Saturday, you know, to try to slow that running game down. To me, it looks like Florida's defensive line is probably going to be one of the, the strengths of this year's team. And uh, they will be tested
2: against that two headed uh, running back that you mentioned. Kentucky's defense this year has obviously been impacted by the loss of Bud Dupree and Zadarius Smith, both of them in the NFL now, both of them defensive ends. So they're weaker in that area, but they've gotten some big plays and some game-changers from their defense too this year.
4: Yeah, Adam, the biggest uh, play so far came uh, last week at South Carolina. You know, They had a nice lead. South Carolina cut it 24-22, was going for a two-point conversion, and linebacker Khalid Henderson caused a fumble on that play. That uh, the Wildcats return for uh, two points of their own to kind of get the decisive score there in a 26-22 win. And then uh, a freshman player, a defensive back to watch out for in Saturday's game is Chris Westry. Last week at South Carolina, he had a sack, a quarterback curry, and an interception. He's uh, quickly kind of made his presence felt with the Wildcats' defense as a first-year player and someone that I'm sure uh,
2: Florida Offensive Coordinator Doug Nussmeier has uh, told his quarterbacks about. It wouldn't be a Gator Tales podcast if we didn't talk about the quarterbacks because that's what everybody is still discussing and trying to sort out. In your mind, what's it going to take for a starter to be announced? What does either one of those guys have to do to definitively take this job? I think just asserting himself that they
4: take command when they have to. Like I thought when you go back to East Carolina night, there was a point in that game where I thought if Will Greer maybe had took control and, and led uh, the offense on a couple of scoring drives to open that game. Maybe Will Greer was the guy, but he kind of struggled with some throws on this one drive. Treon Harris comes back in and obviously leads him on that the drive that put him up by 14 again at the end of the game that ended up being a really important score. So again, it's both guys have just had their moments and neither guy's really shined when uh, when given the chance.
2: Remember to check out Scott's features and blog on GatorZone.com. Outside of the current staff at Kentucky, it's hard to imagine there are many coaches out there that know more about the program than Greg Nord. Florida's current tight ends coach and special teams coordinator was a tight end, center, and long snapper for the Wildcats from 1974 to 78, and also enjoyed multiple coaching stints at his alma mater over the years. Jeff Cardozo had a chance to sit down with Coach Nord and asked him what it's like being back in the Bluegrass State.
6: I've been in touch with the program because uh, I've stayed on there, and I've, I've actually coached for the program for several years. But then... My careers brought me back from the University of Louisville to coach against them more years than I've actually coached for them. So yes, I am familiar. Um, there's a lot of people in this stadium that uh, are former teammates and former players of mine. But unlike my children, who have had Gator gear on all week and, uh, <laughs> and uh, crossed in and we lines,
7: is that ever hard? Obviously, it's part of the gig and, and coaching, and you, know, you play against guys that you, you may have played against in in an enemy setting and then now your teammates with them is is it the same just coaching
6: you're just going out and doing your job no it's once you cross the line it's whether you're in the backyard competing against your brother or we're here in Commonwealth Stadium with the Gators versus the Wildcats. Uh, the team that I'm on, you're either with me or against me, and that's kind of how all of us approach it.
7: Well, the uh, the position that uh, they coach up, the tight ends have done a really nice job. You've got three guys that have certainly contributed throughout the first couple of games. Offensively, you guys are spreading the ball around everywhere. Wide receivers, tight ends, running backs.
6: Well, I think it's um, a tribute to both Coach Michael Wayne and Coach Nusmar in that the offense is geared toward doing what we can do best, and we've been a, able to do a good job of getting all of our players involved and enabling them to go out and make plays. And when all of them have had a chance, for the most part, they've done a good job of it.
7: How pleased are you with the position in general? You, you get here and you, know, you don't know McGee's going to get another year yet. You've got a guy that probably had not even played the position yet, and you got Goolsby
6: who's, what, 20, 25 snaps last year. Well, you know, it's a tribute to the hard work that they've done and the buying into Coach Michael Wayne's whole program. I think all of them have done a good job of embracing the work that we've been able to Get from them in the weight room all through the summer, the time that they spent learning the offense, and then their dedication on the uh, field. You know, it's an us kind of deal. Um, it's not just them as players, us as coaches, it's a combination of all of the above.
7: Talking with Florida assistant coach Greg Nord, who also coaches the special teams, so let's uh, switch gears to that coach. Mick Hubert, who, who calls the games on the radio, I think got more excited than I've ever heard him after the first game, and Austin Harden kept putting ball after ball after ball in the end zone.
6: Is that something you guys preach touchback-wise? There was a couple kicks I could have covered for. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, when you you kick it out, then certainly you take the, hand, the ball out of the hands of what most teams feel like is one of their most explosive players, or they wouldn't be back there as a kick returner, so... That part of it's been good. Um, you know, we've had a couple missed tackles on them on a couple of those returns. That did get out on us, so we've got to clean that up a little bit. But uh, for the most part, we've been fairly sound on our coverage. You know, we've got to get him, get him back to hitting them like he's hit them all through spring and the early part of camp. He had a had those couple misses on the other night, and got to move on, tear the page off the hook. and get back to the good page that we know. And what do you tell him after a couple of misses? Is it just
7: about going back and knowing he's successful, knowing, hey, you know how to kick a field goal, just go out and forget about old ones
6: that you did miss? Right. Well, what you got to do is go out and do the things that allow you to do it right. What you can't do when uh, you're a kicker is go out there and try to compensate for what you just did wrong. Go out and do what you did right and because you see it all the time a guy misses one left then they go out and they push the next one right rather than I'm going out and using the exact kick that I need to uh, may have done something just a little wrong in this technique to cause one to miss well go out and do the technique right don't change your technique last thing
7: coach the guys that are returning the kicks returning the punts and obviously we didn't see Vernon last game but Brandon Powell did a nice job you've got some electric guys back there who healthy
6: Yes, it's been fun to coach them. Those guys embrace it; they love it. Uh, Brandon has been a whisker away from two really long ones, punt return wise. We, uh, you know, Vernon went out, so you know we got the young rookie in there. He had him a good return there the first game, and then uh, Brandon, he's he can go score from anywhere.
7: Well, Coach, uh, you scored on this interview. Great job. I know uh, it's it's cool to be back here in Lexington, and I, I never saw you back in that the Kentucky blue, but you look really nice in the Gator blue. Well, I feel better in this one, too. All right. Coach, thank you very much. Take care.
2: Our thanks to both Jeff Cardozo and Coach Nord. Ironically enough, the Gator great we're highlighting today actually played against Greg Nord in the Florida-Kentucky series back in the 70s. We promised you a look through history on Gator Tales, and today we deliver on that by catching up with one of the great wide receivers in the history of Florida football. Gator Vision's Shelby Granath tells us about the storied career of Wes Chandler. Hey,
8: hey. From 1974 to 1977, Wes Chandler's name echoed throughout the Swamp. Arguably as one of the greatest pass receivers in Gator history, he brought fans to their feet throughout his All-America career in Orange and Blue. In January, the National Football Foundation announced that Wes Chandler was being inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame. Not only an honor for Chandler himself, but also for everyone who guided him throughout his outstanding career.
1: I'm very grateful, I'm humbled, and I'm very appreciative. Uh, The honor, it means so much because it just doesn't talk about who Wes Chandler was as an athlete, but the person, more importantly, the individuals that I played with uh, on the field and enjoyed off the field as well.
4: Tonight, we welcome back to the Swamp, a two-time All-American, Wes Chandler.
8: His name was once again heard in the Swamp when the Gators hosted the Pirates from East Carolina. Chandler returned to his alma mater to receive a National Football Foundation Hall of Fame on-campus salute, a tradition that began with the inaugural class in 1951. During the salute, Chandler received an All-American plaque that will remain on display at UF.
1: You never prepared for moments like this, and, and so the emotions are high. Uh, even as I stand here, and so certainly I'm looking forward to it. And uh, it's not like playing in the Swamp. There's nothing like it, so just hearing my name one more time in the Swamp, that's the ultimate thing.
4: Gator fans, college football, Hall of Famer, Wes Chandler.
8: Returning to Gainesville means returning home for Chandler, who hasn't had many trips back to Ben Hill Griffin Stadium recently. Chandler returned in 2013 to be the honorary Mr. Tubitz, and before that, he hadn't run on to Florida Field since his final game as a Gator in 1977.
1: It's tremendous. Uh, it's where I played. It's 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 the grassroots of growing from a young boy into a young man, and uh, certainly being able to come back here and and just look around and see the growth of the university and. Uh, I tell you, it's, it's amazing that what Florida has done to this point.
8: Under College Football Hall of Fame coach Doug Dickey, Chandler's senior season was one for the record books. He caught 92 passes for 1,963 yards and recorded 22 touchdowns for the Orange and Blue. He appeared in the 1978 Senior Bowl and East-West Shrine Games and finished 10th in the 1977 Heisman Trophy voting. He was also the recipient of the Fergie Ferguson Award, which is presented to a Florida senior who displays outstanding leadership, character, and courage. Prior to the football game between the Gators and the Pirates, Chandler had the opportunity to catch up with former coaches, including Dickey, and teammates to thank everyone who helped him earn this incredible honor.
1: For me, I'm grateful because it's, it's those people uh, that really, really made me the player I am today and, and helped me grow and mold into the individual I am also.
8: Chandler will be the eighth Gator player to be inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame, joining Carlos Alvarez, Wilbur Marshall, Emmitt Smith, Steve Spurrier, Dale Van Sickle, Danny Werfel, and Jack Youngblood. Florida has now had five players inducted to the College Football Hall of Fame in the past 10 years, the most of any school in the SEC.
1: It's tremendous. It's it's an outstanding honor because uh, those are people who I know and I had tremendous respect for uh, as people, but more importantly, I marveled at their performances on the field. The
8: 2015 College Football Hall of Fame class will be inducted at the 58th NFF Annual Awards Dinner in New York City on December 8th.
2: Make sure to check out the great work done by Shelby and the rest of the Gator Vision team on GatorZone.com and on the GatorZone TV show. And that's all we have for this week's episode of Gator Tales. Remember to submit your trivia answers to GatorsPodcast at gmail.com or tweet them to Gators Podcast and use those same outlets to reach out and let us know what you think of Gator Tales and what you'd like to hear in the future. Now that we've got you fully prepared, watch the Gators go for their 29th straight win over the Wildcats Saturday night at 7.30 on the SEC Network. Our next episode will preview the Tennessee game in the Swamp and will be available next Thursday. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, thanking you for joining us on Gator Tales.